Great to see you. If I don't know you, I'm Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to, great to see you. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, yeah, I'm going to preach for a bit. Sorry about that. Um, so I went, I went to the park yesterday. I went to the play park with my sons. And that's an important bit. And um, my youngest son was on a climbing frame. And he was climbing around, like you do on a climbing frame. And as he climbed around... Basically, I had this really surreal moment where I realized he was like on top of the climbing frame and there was this girl next to him. My youngest son's at seven uh, and this girl was probably similar age, maybe slightly younger. And as I looked at my, my youngest, I realized that this girl next to him was just staring at me, like just like locked in. And I was like, oh, hello. And like, I kind of smiled and was like, hello. And then she, and then uh, my, my son, kind of actually just kind of clambered over her. And she's a bit like that. And she, as he did this, she just continued to stare at me. So I was like, what is going on? And my son actually got off the climbing frame. And I was like, we were locked in to this, to this moment. And I was like, oh, something's happening here. And then what I realized, like, was gradually I was like, are you okay? And she didn't say anything. Her facial expression didn't change. She literally just stared at me. And eventually I realized she was stuck on top of this climbing frame. And what she was feeling was fear, I think, but she almost didn't know it. she was too young. So she didn't know what to say, she didn't know what to do, but she was like, you. <laughs> and I almost had to be like, you need me, don't you? And then I said to her, like, do you want to come down? And she didn't, again, she didn't say anything. She just literally just kept on looking at me. And eventually I kind of opened up my hands and she jumped into my arms and I got her down. Now I tell you that story not to sound like a hero, although I know. Uh, uh, yeah. Thank you. And that's the end of the sermon. Um, no, so I tell you that story because it spoke to me. The whole, um, if you've been here for any length of the last few weeks, you'll know that we're in a series called Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. Fix Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, and we've been in the book of Hebrews. And it's just that sense, isn't there, for me, like, we've got to fix our eyes on him. And it might be that you're here tonight, and it might be like, like that little girl. She was like, she didn't really know what she needed. She didn't know what she was feeling. She didn't even, she couldn't even speak. But obviously something deep down in her was like, I need to look. Look at this guy, because he might be able to help me. And I suppose I just want to, like come into this talk tonight just being like, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Whatever we're feeling tonight and wherever we're at, and even if you don't know how you feel about him or you don't know how you feel about your life right now, maybe there is a fear in your life. Maybe you're feeling like you're on top of a climbing frame. You don't know how to get down. Or maybe you're feeling really joyful. Maybe you're feeling really peaceful. Whatever you're feeling like, there is just so much richness. It's so life-giving just to fix our eyes on Jesus and let him speak. And let him move. So let me just pray. Would you pray with me as well as we start? Lord, I just invite you now into this moment. Lord, I invite you into my heart as I preach. I pray for all of us in this room. Lord, soften our hearts to hear from you tonight. We don't want to leave without having met with you. Amen. Great. So like I said, we're in, this, we're in the book of Hebrews. That's the series. If, uh, so Hebrews, just as a quick recap, Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. That's right towards the end of the Bible. Uh, the author is unknown. We don't know exactly who wrote it. We know it was written for a Jewish Christian audience, so probably people from a Jewish background or Jewish tradition who have become Christians in the early days of the church 2,000 years ago. And 
We've arrived tonight in chapter 7, made it to chapter 7, verse 22, and this is what it says. If, by the way, Bible verses tonight, if you've got a Bible, grab it now. If not, it will appear behind me on the screen. But verse 22 of chapter 7 says, Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And what we're looking at tonight is covenant. Covenant. We're looking at the idea of this new, better covenant. And the book of Hebrews builds towards this right from, right from the first chapter. So right at the start of Hebrews, it, it really talks about Jesus as our king, as God's son, as the Messiah. And then it builds in chapter 2 to say, well, Jesus was all those things, but he was also truly human. And even though he was truly human, he, he was above the angels and then hence to the law. He was our rescuer and our salvation. So Jesus is, you know, the book builds straight away to be like, Jesus is incredible. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of Jesus. The book says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest and the one in whom we abide. And then last week, James, I know, was here, and he was talking about Jesus as the royal priest, the true high priest, the new, uh, sorry, the royal priesthood, the one who accomplished what no other ancient priest was able to do. And so we arrived tonight, having built on all those things, and what we're looking at is that Jesus is the new covenant. He's the new covenant. He's the better covenant. And the word better is really important here because better is you, that word better, is used more in the book of Hebrews, like it's used more in the book of Hebrews combined than the whole of the New Testament combined. So the book of Hebrews, if like you could sum it up in a phrase, would be better. Jesus is better. That's basically what it says. And what we're looking at tonight is that Jesus is the new covenant. He's the better covenant. So, and you know, and what we see in Jesus is that Jesus fulfilled perhaps the most central and vital promise that's in the Bible. Because what Jesus did is he established a new covenant. And it was a covenant that was actually spoken of hundreds of years before he was even born. And that's a covenant that is still very much true today. We live, we today, 2,000 years later, live under that covenant that he created. And that covenant will last now forevermore. So what I want to do tonight is two things. One is I want to just establish what is covenant. Some of you might be like, I don't know what that word means. I don't, or even if I know what it means, I don't really know what it means in a biblical sense. So I want to do that. And then secondly, later, once we've established what covenant is, or what I want to talk about is, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? How does that change us if we live under a new covenant? So let's, let's, start, let's establish what is covenant. Uh, this week, uh, and the last couple weeks, I've actually been to uh, a physio appointment at the hospital. Uh, I turned 40 last year, and they say life begins at 40, in my case, Injuries begin at 40. Okay, so <laughs> sadly, in the last year, I never seem to be injury prone, and suddenly I'm falling apart. And anyway, I've ended up in physio. I've got apparently I've got ten, I can't even say it, tendiopathy, something like that. I've got a problem with a tendon. That's uh, not good. And I have to, I had to go to the physio. And when I was at the physio, I met this amazing guy, terrific physio. I gave him five stars on my TripAdvisor. It was he was excellent. And he was so thorough. And he sat me down and he talked me through like we, he did the diagnosis. He did his plan for the treatment. He taught me through all the different exercises I need to do, all the follow-up appointments, uh, all the time that he would give me and all his expertise, the timeline, all that kind of stuff. And then there was this kind of crucial moment, quite an intense moment. He really kind of looked me in the eye, and he was like, right, what you need to know here is that there is no magic pill I can give you to fix this. You do realize that. And he said, what I need you to do is what you need to do to recover from this injury. Like I say, it was quite like this intense moment. But basically what he was saying to me was like, do we have an agreement here? Are you with me on this? 
He was saying, look, I will uphold my end of the bargain. Will you uphold yours? So I left what was a fairly you know, simple, mundane physio appointment with this real sense that I'd entered into an, an agreement. On a more profound level, we see agreements made and a similar theme when we look at the idea of marriage. Now, some of us in the room tonight are married. Some of us are not married. Maybe we hope to get married. Some of us, uh, well, many of us have been to a wedding. Now, you'll know on a wedding day that when a couple gets married, they exchange vows. Uh, I'm married to Alice. Alice isn't here tonight. Uh, many of you will know Alice. Um, she's also one of the leaders here in the church. Now, we've been married for over 15 years, which is I'm very happy about. Uh, but, you know, when we, when we did our wedding vows, I actually remember the evening before we got married, we did our wedding rehearsal. And wedding vows, I, haven't, we, I don't think either of us have really thought about them. And we were really caught up in all the... You know, all the organization and plan. Well, I'll be honest, Alice was more caught up in the organization and planning. But um, it was, you know, it was an amazing time. It was a hectic time. It was a joyful time. It was, but there was a lot going on. And suddenly, we were doing our wedding rehearsal. And uh, James, who's our senior pastor, James uh, conducted our, our, our wedding ceremony years ago. And he was like, right, you've got to do practice your vows. And suddenly, there was this amazing moment which just taught both of us out. You, you go from kind of, like I say, all the planning to be like, wow, we're saying some really profound things to each other here. It really, it really rocked us in a good way. Because amidst the, like, the joy and the celebration of any wedding day, you've also got that moment, haven't you? It's a kind of very sober, solemn moment. When two people, they say, all right, we're coming together to stay together. And that is exactly what we mean. That's a moment of mutual agreement. And that's what we would think of in, in a biblical sense as a marriage covenant. A covenant, something that is sacred and eternal. In the case of marriage, it's an agreement made in the presence of God. So the marriage covenant is actually a really helpful way to us to think about the idea of covenant generally. Because the word covenant, uh, is well, the Hebrew word for it, the in the original Hebrew in the Bible, actually comes from the word to bind, to bind, so bind something together. And it's this idea of two parties coming together. They bind themselves together either to perform a service or a duty or there's an agreement between them. And covenant is one of the key themes in the Bible. So like we can read our Bibles and we will see God described to us in many ways. And we will see God described to us as a father, as a teacher, as a lord, as saviour, and as a friend. And another way that God is described to us in the Bible is he is described as our covenant partner. Our covenant partner. Now, in the Old Testament... There are four main examples of where God made a covenant, or one of these binding agreements, with people. Um, and typically the way these covenants would work is that God would like say, right, I'm, I've made kind of a, a binding promise to you or to a group of people, and in return, he expected certain commitments back from those people. So what are those four? Well, just quickly, I'll run through them. So the first one is Noah. So I think most of us are familiar with Noah. Noah and the ark, the flood. All that stuff. So if you want to read this, not, not now, but if you want to go home and read it, that's in Genesis, at the start of the Bible, chapter 9, there's obviously the flood. Now, this is a unique covenant that God makes with Noah because he doesn't actually, God doesn't ask for anything in return. It's just a simple promise that basically the earth will be a reliable place once again for humans to live in relationship with him after the flood. There will never be another flood. So that's the first covenant that God makes with Noah. There's a second one with a guy called Abraham. 
again in the book of Genesis. You can read about it from chapter 12 onwards. And what God promises Abraham is he says, right, you and your descendants, uh, sorry, he says to Abraham, you will have many descendants and you will be a father of many nations. And he promises to give Abraham this land, the land of Canaan, and he promises that that will be for him and for his descendants. In return, what he says to Abraham is, I want you and your descendants, I want you guys with me. I want you, to, you guys to trust me. I want you to do what is right and what is just. So that's the second covenant we can read about in the Old Testament. The third one is with Moses. Many of you will be familiar with Moses. So Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses has led the Israelites out of uh, slavery and oppression in Egypt. And God promises basically to bless the Israelites, the people of Israel. And he says, I will bless you. I will make you a special nation. You will represent me to the rest of the world. You know, you guys will be a light to the world. Um, but in order to, to represent God to the rest of the world, they need to make a commitment to him, to God. And again, if you want to read that, like, Loads of stuff in the Old Testament. Read some like Deuteronomy 4 onwards. That would be a good starting place. So you've got Noah, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses. And then finally, you've got King David. King David is the fourth example in the, in the Old Testament. And this can be found from in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 7 onwards. Basically, God makes a promise to King David. He makes him king over Israel. And he says, right, David, you, your descendants will have an eternal kingdom. And it will stretch all over creation. Um, basically says, what I want you to do in return in this covenant, I want you to lead Israel, I want, and I want Israel to obey God's laws and to represent, uh, represent God to the world. Now, in all four of these covenants, what we see repeated over and over again is the same tragic story. What happens is that God is faithful on his side of the covenant, on his side of the agreement, but it's on the other side that it falls down. So in the example of Abraham, God does make Abraham the father of many nations. He does let his descendants have the land of Canaan and so on. However, his descendants don't trust him. They don't trust God. They don't do what is right and just. So it falls down on their side. Similarly, with Moses and the Israelites, he does make Israel, God does make Israel a special nation. He does call them to be a kingdom of priests. He does... Um, get them to be line of stewards of God's presence in the world. However, on the other side, Israel do not obey his commands. They do not represent God well to the world. And again, with King David, the covenant that he made with King David, he promises David that he'll extend his kingdom to the whole world and give David this eternal kingdom. But David's descendants don't honor it. They don't obey God's laws. In fact, what they do is they lead people away from God and they lead people to disobey God and to reject his goodness. So what we see is those covenants, the old covenants in the Old Testament, they fail. So we get to this point where a new covenant is needed and therefore a new covenant is promised. And we see this, again, it's in the Old Testament. We're now in the book, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, a guy called Jeremiah, who's one of the prophets. And in chapter 31 of his book, it wasn't a book at the time, it was just prophetic writing. But um, in chapter 31 of his book, there's a prophecy which says that, right, there is a day coming. There is a day coming where there will be a new covenant. A new God will make a new covenant with his people. And conveniently, that prophecy is, can be found in the book of Hebrews. So let's get back into our Bibles. Um, this is it's in chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible, grab it now. Otherwise, it'll appear behind me. Verse 7, start at verse 7. This is... That prophecy about a new covenant, 
uh, coming into play. So verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So this is the passage in Hebrews that's talking about this new covenant. There's an old covenant and now there's a new covenant because of Jesus. In Greek, there are two words for the English word new. So there's two words in Greek for the English word new. And this book of Hebrews was written in Greek. So there's the first word for new in Greek would be the word neos. neos. So, and what that would mean is basically something that is new, like it's like the next thing. So it might be like a new car or a new iPhone, something like that. Neos simply means like the most recent in time. There is a second word in Greek for the English word new, and that word is kainos or kainos. Now kainos means something different. It means something, something is new in kind, it's new in nature, it is new in quality. It is something that is radically new and different. So when we talk about the new covenant that's talked about in Hebrews here, the word used is kainos. kainos. So this new covenant is utterly different. It's not just new as in the most recent in time. It is new in nature, it is new in kind, and it is radically different to what has come before. Now, this is really important because we, as the church, if you're here tonight as a Christian or someone who is exploring the Christian faith, we are people of this new covenant. Because we are, if you are a Christian, you are a covenantal person. We are a covenantal people. So we live in this new, better reality. We live in this chaos reality. So what does that mean for us? What does that actually change in our lives? Well, I want to say three things. That I think it may, well, three areas in which it makes a difference to us. And I've got an image which will hopefully help with all three. So the first thing that this new covenant does and why it changes things for us is this. The first thing is that we live knowing that we are invited into a relationship with God. We know, because of the New Covenant, that we are invited into a relationship with God. So it's a really simple image. If you want to think of the New Covenant in one way, it would look like an engagement ring. It would look like an engagement ring. Now, I know for some of us tonight, marriage is something that you are married. For others of us, that maybe it's something that you hope might happen at some point. I know for others of us, marriage is something that's... Not, not in your life, perhaps you feel according to singleness or to celibacy, whatever it is. But just for the sake of this image, I think well, let's just have that mind of there's an engagement ring that is being offered to us. Because this new covenant speaks of a God who not only wants to be in relationship with us, but he passionately and relentlessly will pursue us for it. This new covenant establishes the terms in which we relate to 
the king, King Jesus. And what it means is that we live under an unconditional and an unchanging offer of love. What the bit of Hebrews tells us is that because of Jesus, we are shown to be like a bride for whom he has laid down his life, such as his desire to be with us. And if we imagine this as like we talked about the marriage covenant like we talked about earlier, what it means is that we have a bridegroom who will never abandon us, who will never wander away. Because God is faithful. God keeps his promises and God is steadfast in his love. Now, I'd love that to really sink in tonight because I think it's all too easy, isn't it, in a culture where, whether we're aware of it or not, we live in a pretty consumeristic culture. And what I mean by that I think we live in quite a disposable, throwaway culture. So I'll give you an example. Like um, Alice and I, we, I'll be honest, we don't watch much TV, but we do watch Gogglebox. So that means that we don't watch much TV, but we watch other people watching TV. Does that make sense? Um, and Gogglebox, whenever we watch it, the thing that strikes me most is they always seem to have reality TV shows. There's people watching reality TV shows. A lot of reality TV shows, from what I can see, and I'll probably just sound really old and a bit out of touch here, but a lot of reality TV shows now seem to be like people get married at the end of it. <laughs> it was like a dating show or whatever it is. People just get married. With a, but it doesn't seem to really matter whether that marriage lasts or not. Do you know what I mean? It, like, it's, like, it's almost the gimmick at the end. But it's not just about marriage. It could be around you know, the way we consume our news content or perhaps like People who are like, buy a house. And then literally like two months later, they're back on right move. What I mean by consumer culture is that sense of, it's very easy to get into the mindset of like, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? We move from like vendor to vendor thinking, right, where can I get my satisfaction next? That kind of culture is in total contrast to the idea of covenantal love. When we come to Jesus and this new covenant in him, what God is saying is that he has spoken like a vow over us. And it's a vow that cannot be broken. He is saying to us, we are not disposable. He will not just walk away from us. He will not go and find a more attractive option. He won't just blow with the wind and take up the next most attractive option. In the new covenant... With Jesus, we have a God who is bound to us, and therefore we are bound to him. So the, covenant, the new covenant with Jesus really does show us that we have a God who wants to be in relationship with us. Secondly, the new covenant is key because it actually empowers us to live under it. It actually empowers us to live under it. Does this better, is a new better covenant? And it's different. Remember the ones I said about in the Old Testament? That they all fell apart. They all had this fatal flaw in them. And the fatal flaw in those old covenants was us. It was human beings. This is what it says in verse 9. I will not, it, sorry, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the problem with all the old covenants wasn't on God's side, it was with us. The problem was human beings. It was, the old government was like trying to pour water into a paper bag. It leaked. It was imbalanced. Because of sin, because of our mess, because of our brokenness, basically God made these commitments to his people, and then they just couldn't live up to them. 
They would always fall short. They would walk away from God. They would disobey him, etc., etc. So God had to change the nature of the covenant. This is what it says in verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I write them sorry, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Instead of being commanded to simply obey external laws, what God has done in the new covenant is he has actually come to live inside of us. He's given us spirit that lives inside of us that creates the desire to be like him and to obey him. It changes our hearts. He changes us so that we want to be like him. He changes us so that we want what God wants. It means that a life with Jesus, the Christian life, under this new covenant is not God just telling me the one thing, you know, the one thing I really want to do is the one thing I can't do. The Christian life lived in the spirit of God is this feeling of like, well, God wants this thing and I want it too. And the more we go on, the more we will want it, the things of God. It's a total paradigm shift. The best way, if I gave you an image for it, I know this sounds odd, but imagine when you were trying to say, uh, say there was a child living in a uh, rainforest, in a tribe in a rainforest, and they had no knowledge of the outside world. And your job was to go in there and tell them about football. That was your job. You go in, not as a Christian missionary, but as a football missionary. Your job is to go to that tribe and say to them, well, I'm going to teach you about football. But what you do to teach them is you take a game of Sabutio. Everyone remember Sabutio? Yeah? Not just me. Sabutio, you know, like, if you're not sure what that is, it's like flick football, yeah? And I remember, like, playing it as a kid. I had a friend who set it up on the table, and it was, like, all laid out. It was always looked better, like, before you actually played. And then when you play, anyone else had that? You play Sabutio, and it's actually really disappointing, isn't it? You're like, it looks so good, and then you're like, and it's a bit rubbish. But imagine you're trying to teach this kid about football, and all you've got is Sabutio. And this kid might be like, right, great. This is fine. You've got some people that you flick around, and they're quite bored quite quickly. Imagine that kid comes out of the, out of the um, rainforest, walks onto a football pitch, and you give him a football and people to play with. Suddenly, football comes alive to him. Do you see how it's a total paradigm shift? Because it's gone from something that is like quite dull and quite mundane to something like, I can do this. I'm alive, I'm doing this, and I've got other people around me. That's almost the paradigm shift here. The old covenant was like written on stone. It was like rules that you need to obey, laws that you have to abide by. We could only fall short. The new covenant is that sense of, yes, God, come and live in me. Come and totally change the picture. I'm not doing this on my own. You know, in this church, we talk a lot about learning to live like Jesus. We take our discipleship to Jesus really seriously. And we've had conversations with people that's like, it's not okay to say that. You can't live like Jesus. It is okay to say that. I'll tell you why it's okay to, live, to say that we want to live like Jesus. Because actually when the Spirit of God comes to live in us under this new covenant, we can't help but live like Jesus. Actually, it's inevitable. It's intrinsic. It's in us. It's a joy. So this new covenant... It's this amazing transformation, this, like I said, this paradigm shift, where we get to learn to live like Jesus. We get to want the things that God wants because he is living inside of us. Third and finally, why is this new covenant 
Why is Jesus as the new covenant so, so important? And what does it change? Well, it changes this. It gives us real forgiveness of sins. It gives us real forgiveness for the sins in our life. Now, James talked about this last week, if you were here. He talked about the, Jesus as, as the royal priesthood, as the true high priest. And basically, before Jesus, and what was required to kind of atone for people's sin and their mess in their lives was essentially a lot of blood and a lot of animals and a lot of sacrifice. Not particularly pleasant. But now, because of Jesus, we can do away with that. It says in verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. We no longer live in a world where we need blood, death, and animal sacrifice to make atonement. Now, no, now we now have, sorry, we now have the blood of Jesus. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. So there's no other animals needed evermore. We no longer need ceremonial priests and regular rituals because there was one sacrifice made on the cross that's done it all forever. We don't need to keep doing those sacrifices, those rituals. If I could give you an image for this, it would be like, imagine you have a, not a very nice image, but imagine you had a wound that you just had to keep putting a new dress in you on every day. You know, when you cut yourself or something like that, and it's that thing, idea, like, you can put that, you can keep redressing the wound, keep putting a fresh bandage on, and it will help, but that bandage will never complete the job. And in the old days, before Jesus went to the cross and rose again, those rituals, those uh, ceremonial sacrifices, they were like redressing the wound. Now, what Jesus has done is total and complete. We never have to do that kind of stuff ever again. It's done, it's finished, it's accomplished. And what that means is that we now live in freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from our past, freedom from our regrets, freedom from our mess, from our brokenness. People of the new covenant live in freedom. So this series has been all about fixing our eyes on Jesus. What I want to do tonight as we come in to finish is we're going to take communion together. And communion, like, it's really apt to take communion because at communion, if you've not done communion before, you need a reminder. Communion is just a chance where we just center ourselves a debt on Jesus. As communion is a moment of remembrance and it's a moment of reflection. It's one of those moments where we're like, right, Jesus, I'm putting you front and center. And what I'm thinking about and what I'm dwelling on is I'm thinking about the fact that you went to the cross. You willingly went to the cross. You were executed by the authorities. You physically died. You went into the grave for three days, and then you rose again. And not only did you rise again, but you rose again in amazing, majestic power, and you then gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's the gospel in 20 seconds if you need to hear it. Okay, that's what we're remembering when we take communion. And communion is just a moment where like, we, we think about that Jesus, the night before he died, he ate a meal with his, um, with his friends, with his disciples, and he basically he took a bit of bread from the table, he broke the bread, and he said, look, this is my body broken for you. It was a foretaste of what would happen 24 hours later. He then took a cup of wine. Tonight we'll be taking grape juice. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And he said that this is my blood of the new covenant 
that's why we're taking it tonight. Because as we talk about the covenant, the new covenant, taking communion is a really obvious thing to do together. And what I'd love to do before we take communion is just to talk through, like, this is why we center ourselves on Jesus. Because Jesus is both the fulfillment of the old covenant and he is the new covenant. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant because, let's think about Abraham, the covenant that, that failed with Abraham. What did, what did God want from Abraham and his descendants? People that would do life with him and would trust him and obey him and do what was just and right. Well, Jesus was the guy who was with God and who did things that were just and right in God's ways. What happened with the covenant with uh, Moses and the Israelites? It fell apart. And yet Jesus was the true Israelite who was the light of the world, who did represent God on earth. Why did the covenant with King David fall apart? It fell apart because his descendants disobeyed God and went their own way. Well, Jesus was David's descendant who did extend the kingdom of God to the whole world. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all the old covenants that failed, and he's the new covenant. So when we take communion in a moment, that's why we fix our eyes on him. Let's take communion. If you are serving communion, could you please come to the front? That would be really helpful. If you've not taken communion here, a few practical things. So what we're going to have is we're going to have uh, two stations um, at the front. People serving the bread and the grape juice on this side will be gluten-free as well if anyone needs gluten-free. So that's my left, your right. And just really practically, when you're ready, make your way forward in your own time. And take a bit of bread, take a bit of grape juice, take it back to where you're sitting. Just have a moment to take it. If you are here tonight and you're like, I'm not sure, I've not taken communion before, I'm not sure I want to do that, you are absolutely fine to sit it out. You, you know, that's fine. At the same time, if you do want to uh, partake in this, if you, you fancy giving it a go, this is just an amazing way to say yes to Jesus and to really like connect with him. Um, and we really invite you to, 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 to take communion. But like I said, there's no pressure. So, yeah, Nathan's going to come and play. Let me just pray, and then we'll join me in prayer, and then we'll take communion together. So, Lord, I thank you who you are. I thank you that you are the new covenant. I thank you that you made a way. I just invite you into this moment. Lord, we say that we want to be people of the new covenant. We want to be people that live in your love and in your grace. So we just take this moment to remember you. We thank you for your body that was broken for us. We thank you for your blood that was poured out for us. So change us, Lord, and meet with us as we take communion now. Amen.